Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polad. My guest today is Marshall Mayer. You might remember him. He joined the podcast maybe about a year and a half ago, and he was here talking about his Let's Buy an Island project. Today, we are talking about something totally different. He is in Kharkiv in Ukraine. We're going to talk about him founding Ukraine Aid International, some of the aid work that he's doing in Ukraine right now, how you can help, and what the situation is like on the ground. I hope you enjoy this episode with Marshall Mayer. Thanks, Marshall, for uh, joining me from uh, from Kharkiv, which is uh, a place a lot on the news, but not a lot of people go to. Um, I wanted to talk to you just about a whole bunch of things, but but first of all, how have you been since the last time we talked? How are things going? I've been good. I've been good. Things are busy. Uh, we've been I've been pushing forward on a number of different projects. One of which is the one I'm on right now in Ukraine. Um, and uh, yeah, been keeping busy still healthy life is good 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 and so tell me a little bit about ukraine uh, aid international what got you involved with the organization and what is you know what is some of the work that it's doing in ukraine so um i actually founded ukraine aid international last year um with my brother brian uh we have been in some form or another um working in ukraine since march of 2022 we started the organization uh, with a desire to help in any way that we could. I have some prior, non- prior nonprofit experience, um, which I'm happy to speak to if we need to, but uh, I, I wanted to set up the organization because we wanted to be able to fund um, the kind of humanitarian projects and, and uh, ground, ground support you know, individuals uh, that are coming into Ukraine, have been coming to Ukraine for the last year and a half, uh, who are just trying to help out in any way that they can. We started the organization on the border with Poland, uh, shuttling aid back and forth from the Polish border uh, into Lviv, where they were transport, transferred into warehouses to be brought further inside Ukraine. Uh, and then, uh, as they say, we had a scope creep <laughs> as we started working our way further in, first to Kiev, then out to Kharkiv. Um, and now we're, we're mostly focused, uh, most of our operations are in Donetsk, um, right near the front lines. So you had this prior experience setting up uh, an aid organization. Um, so you, you probably were you familiar with the logistics of of setting that up? I mean, what what are some of the sort of high level steps to to get something like that going? I mean, from a corporate perspective, it's no no different than starting any other business. You know, you register a corporation, uh, except this time it's a nonprofit, uh, and then you go through the there's an application process in terms of getting your tax deductible status so that you know people can feel comfortable giving you, um, you know, that donation for uh, what they consider emergencies, uh, which of course this is one. Uh, you can get a an expedited uh, opinion on the tax deductible status, which of course is a big boon um, to fundraising because it's really difficult to get somebody to give you money for absolutely nothing um, rather than to get a little bit of a tax benefit for it. Uh, in terms of the logistics of actually operating on the ground here, um, I'd been to Ukraine, actually lived in Ukraine for a number of months, about 10 years ago. Um, my brother had done the same for a different company that he was working with. And uh, we both knew a lot about the country. Uh, we don't speak Ukrainian. We don't speak Russian. Uh, so getting to uh, work our way out in wartime, in a time of great upheaval, uh, was difficult to say the least, and and that logistics is a much more complicated problem. So we worked our way 
out to Kharkiv. We met a number of local partners that we began working with. Uh, we began uh, building our own operations and eventually building our own dedicated team. And as we got more connected within the country and, and, and got to know the system a little bit better, we were able to uh, reduce the randomness of our missions. Uh, not to say they're ever random, but they were less focused. And, uh, you know, in any operation, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, uh, the focus is important because it's how you, you know, get the most efficiency and how you make the most impact. You can't be all things to all people. And, uh, and that's where we started to focus in Donetsk and then eventually specifically on, uh, on sister cities and setting up uh, relationships between cities uh, in the U.S. and actually one in France um, and, and pairing them with uh, towns and cities in Ukraine um, of similar size with similar characteristics, um, but most importantly with the shared characteristic of wanting to get to know each other and uh, with the U.S. community's desire to help uh, that community in Ukraine uh, stay resilient, uh, survive winters, survive um, and rebuild after shellings, and, uh, and you know, work towards a more bright future, which is a little cliche, but it's true. And what are some of the, the supplies? Uh, do you have a focus on, is it, you know, medical supplies or, or kitchen, you know, supplies that that kind of thing? Is there a focus? Yeah, you know, it started again, like I said, with the randomness, it started with whatever we could get our hands on. The world was sending things uh, to Ukraine en masse and just, just massive quantities. I've been in warehouses that are just housed, filled to the brim with everything from, uh, you know, diapers and baby food to medication, to hospital beds, to uh, more tortilla chips than you ever thought could exist, um, and, and everywhere in between. So... That was sort of the beginning. Uh, as we get further along, you know, we want to focus on creating the largest impact with the money that we raise as we can. Uh, we do try not to make a run to one of the towns that we're working in without a full van of something. <laughs> so at least we have something to give away, but that's not necessarily the focus. So you know, we'll fill a brand, we'll fill a van with bread, uh, but we're not out feeding people day to day. Uh, that being said, we wanted to focus, for example, in the food area, we wanted to focus more on the not giving a man a fish, not teaching a man to fish, but rather getting him a fishing pole. He already knows how to fish. <laughs> and uh, and so what we did in the food side is, is uh, in the spring, and we'll do more of it this next spring, uh, we did a number of seed distributions uh, in some of these communities where people were able to plant their own gardens, feed themselves uh, through the summer and the fall, rather than getting one meal one time from us. Uh, you know, in terms of a large loaf of bread, they get a tiny little package of seeds or a handful of packages of seeds, and they're able to have fruits and vegetables through the winter. And what is what is it like getting to those areas? I, I mean, you you, yeah, you 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 mentioned the van, and so I'm conjuring up what it's like to actually drive, you know, to these areas. Uh, you know, and and how does it change as you get from the Polish border closer to the front lines? So it's interesting because I think in a lot of Western minds, the further West you get, the more modern and wealthy life becomes. And, and to that end, you would expect that a country like Ukraine, which is sitting in the east of Europe, uh, its Western border would be, you know, five-lane highways that people, you know, facilitating commerce and, and uh, building uh, trading relationships with uh, neighbors like Poland and Romania. However... When you cross from Poland into the road that leads to Lviv, which is the, the largest 
big city in Ukraine, very close to the border, uh, a main entry point for most people. Lviv is a lovely town. Uh, I I don't want to insult any Viennese people who might be listening, but uh, I consider it the coffee capital of Europe. Um, there's more coffee shops than you would ever expect. More coffee shops in Lviv than there probably are Starbucks in New York. Uh, it's it's really a lovely town, an amazing history, um, you know, incredible art and architecture. But the road from the border from Poland to Lviv is one lane. And the reason for that is that up until, well, really up until 2014, when the Russian-backed separatists in uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk uh, began their separatist movement, uh, which of course we know today to be effectively a completely Russian-backed and Russian-controlled operation, uh, and the annexation of Crimea, the illegal annexation of Crimea, we know today, uh, Ukrainians know today, that Russians are, are not their friends. But up until 2014, that was not the case. Uh, historically, culturally, language um, uh, language connections and uh, food connections uh, have have bound Ukrainians to Russia. And so ironically, while you would think that you know, you'd want to facilitate commerce with the West, the infrastructure in Ukraine actually goes from one-lane roads to Lviv to a two-lane road to Kyiv to a four-lane highway to Kharkiv. And, and as you get further and you know towards Russia, that's where you get the mega highways. That's where you get the, the most transport and the most, you know, the the large trucks that are going back and forth because, because the ultimate betrayal, the really terrible and ultimate betrayal of this invasion, besides the the horrors of the war itself, is that Ukrainians always looked at Russia as their, if not brothers, their cousins. And that's been, you know, it's hard enough to get invaded. It's especially hard when it's someone you thought was a relative. And, you know, whether you agree with the general politics or not of, of I mean, putting aside the war for a second of, you know, Russian politics, Ukrainian politics, et cetera, you can love a party, you can hate a party, you can love a president, you can hate a president. But, but by and large, there was a cultural connection and people in the East and Ukraine especially never looked West, ever. And and you know probably couldn't point out most Western European countries on a map. So there's getting into the East is is funny because it starts off a little difficult, not just in terms of traffic and and you know driving through the roads, but in the West of the country it's mostly untouched uh, because of the Ukrainian resistance, the ability to hold back the Russians uh, in the West of the country, in the Northwest of the country. Most areas are are untouched. Every city has received a missile, um, a bomb, something um, that has destroyed buildings, destroyed lives, uh, and and cut lives short. But but by and large, uh, with the exception of things you might expect, I mean, it's I I don't mean this to be a glib example, but things you might accept, expect from a an urban warfare video game like Call of Duty you know, random, uh, uh, you know, snipers' nests built into random sides of buildings and uh, and and on the edges of bridges and checkpoints on the road and other things like that. Uh, sandbags, you know, around cultural monuments. The cities are pretty normal. Uh, most things people have, uh, populations have exploded because uh, in, you know, IDPs, internally displaced persons, have moved from the east to the west. Uh, Lviv quadrupled in size overnight. But, but things are pretty normal otherwise. 
as you move further east, once you cross out of uh, Kiev and you start driving into Kharkiv, that's where you start to see uh, more evidence of, of destruction. And then when you drive from Kharkiv down to Donetsk, uh, if we look back at summer of last year, the Russians had made it uh, almost to Kharkiv city. They were pushed back. And, and in that, you know, uh, for two or 300 kilometer retreat, uh, the areas there is where you start to see the real signs of war. And so you, you get a little bit of a, of a, not false sign of war, but of a, a hint of a war going on as you're in the rest of Ukraine, where life feels pretty normal, with the exception of the, the constant dull roar of the air raid sirens, uh, you know, a, a bomb blowing up down the street every couple of months. I mean, really awful things in and of themselves. But but you don't pass through towns that have been burned into form, you know, carcasses of what they used to be, like you do when you get into uh, southern or southeastern Kharkiv and into Donetsk. Or when you're in the south, uh, you know, uh, going from Odessa to Kherson, areas that had been occupied. And that's where we're working. Mostly, most of the towns that we're working in are either uh, were either occupied or have been sitting on the front lines for now for a year and a half because they held the line, but they're still within rocket range. And those are the places where a rocket exploded uh, in one of the towns we were in, a rocket exploded right overhead um, of a res residential neighborhood two days prior to our visit and uh, and did so equidistant between a kindergarten and a preschool. Um, you know, where uh, a, a local theater, uh, uh, you know, probably hundred year old building, I would judging from looking at it, uh, windows completely blown out because of, of numerous rocket attacks, uh, where you see a pizza parlor that's been burned to the ground, an entire town that's been burned down, uh, rusting tanks in the streets, uh, uh, churches that have been used for target practice. And, uh, and then you hear the stories from the people of what they went through. Uh, one of the towns that we work in uh, was occupied for four months. And in that period, the average citizen who was remaining in town lost 30 kilos in weight, about 60 pounds. Um, I'm a fairly big guy. I don't have 30 kilos to lose. Um, so, you know, just thinking about what that is, is, is just horrific. And, and that's where, you know, that's where we're working. And that's one of the places where, you know, people need the most help and, and where it gets really sad. But at the same time, there's a lot of hope. Uh, nobody in Ukraine says, if we win, they say, after the victory. Uh, there's no question in their minds that they're holding their country and they're going to stay free. That, that, that's interesting. I was going to ask, what is morale like? Um, but also, what is sort of daily life like in, in those kind of places? And um, you sort of answered those questions. I, I'm curious, as an outsider, when you arrive to these places, how people perceive you, um, what is it like? Uh, you know, I, I imagine I, from an outsider perspective, for me, I would imagine there would be a lot of skepticism just because of, you know, just, you know, suspicion or whatever it is um, from anything, just because the world has been turned upside down for a lot of these people. But how, how are you being greeted or treated? Or, and what is it like coming from the outside? We've had, we've been warmly welcomed everywhere we've gone. I mean, we joke that having a Western passport in Ukraine right now is like having a diplomatic passport anywhere else. 
you know, you hit a checkpoint, you know, flash a U.S. passport or, um, you know, a German passport, and they tend to wave you through because they know what you're here for. Um, and it's, it's one of two things, and I'm not dressed in military gear, so it's one of one thing. Uh, nobody shows up there by accident. <laughs> it takes a while to get there. And, um, you know, three or four days if you're coming from the U.S. And the the needs are so great. And and like I said, that betrayal of losing your brothers leaves you without a family, right? Uh, not just your brothers and your Ukrainian brothers. I mean, the Russian brothers and cousins that you thought were your family, you know, are now your enemy. And you feel alone in the world. And to find out that there's people around the world who are willing to come to your aid and come to your side is a comforting feeling. Um, in terms of morale, you know, it, it, look, it depends on the day, it depends on the town. By and large, people are, you know, like I said, they plan for the victory. They're, there's no expectation they're going to lose, uh, but that doesn't make it any less tough. There are towns that we work in that haven't had electricity in a year and a half. Uh, most of the towns we work in have difficulty heating their homes or, heat, you know, keeping their people warm during the winter, and Ukrainian winters are notorious. Um, it, it's tough. It's really tough. And... You know, a lot of us in the West would be upset if we didn't have hot water for a day, let alone no water. So, you know, imagine what that's like. Uh, coming back, actually, to what you said before, one of the things that uh, when you're asking what sort of aid we provide, I mentioned seeds. Um, another thing we do is water filtration systems. Uh, we've installed water filtration systems that are currently supporting about 150,000, maybe 200,000 Ukrainians um, on the front. You know, those those systems are incredible. They're made locally in Ukraine uh, with a partner organization that we work with. And uh, and those organizations are are uh, are our two organizations that are that are putting in these uh, these systems um, are in areas that are in desperate need of them because they've been drinking what we call technical water, uh, which is to say it is chemically water, but it is not drinkable water. Um, in some cases, water systems have been actively poisoned, but in most cases, just from uh, treatment plants being out of sync and or out of action, uh, water or water lines just being busted uh, from bombs or or what have you, there just it there just is no running water, and so having the opportunity to get uh, fresh water whenever you need it is um, is vital. And actually, this I know this is a branded water bottle, but um, this is water from one of our water filtration systems we checked on yesterday, <laughs> and I refilled the bottle. So uh, I can confirm it's delicious. And I was going to ask, what other kind of, what are some of the the areas of aid that you're doing? What is what is you know the sort of the the operation day to day for of the uh, organization? Well, as I, as I mentioned a little earlier, you know, we try to focus on things that have a wider range uh, of, of impact. We want to help the most people we can with the least amount of money, given it's a charity and we have to operate on a shoestring budget. Um, so in addition to seeds, which we've distributed, in addition to water filtration systems, which uh, hundreds of thousands of you are using, uh, we do do uh, work in distributing um, medical equipment. Uh, we do work in... Um, uh, some home, not reconstruction or repair, more yeah, I guess repair, uh, but more like re-roofing homes uh, to you know with with basic uh, uh, corrugated metal sheets, uh, just to make sure that the homes that have lost say roofs but not walls uh, are able to survive the winter and be salvageable. Otherwise, they need to be demolished from the mold and mildew that ends up growing. Um, you know those sorts of things. 
We've also been doing educational programs with kids. Um, I actually just came back from one of our towns where we set up a, a Zoom call between some of the students living in town and some students from their sister city in the U.S. where they were able to meet and sort of discuss and and have um, you know and, ex and eventually exchange information. We're hopefully we'll get some pen palling going back and forth. So we're trying to do some cultural things as well. We also um, have been providing, purchasing and providing a number of um, uh, heavy machinery for basic things that you and I take for granted every day, but which are no longer a given in a lot of these frontline communities, especially those that have been occupied. So uh, when the Russians retreated, they took everything on four wheels with them. And, uh, and as a result, you know, you go into a town that hasn't had a trash truck come through in six months. And, you know, what do you think is happening? Trash was piling up on the street. Uh, it's running off into the water supply. This particular town I'm thinking of uh, actually has well water access that is clean. So, uh, but it's no longer clean if the trash is running into the water system. So, uh, so for them, we actually got them two trash trucks, right? One large one to do most of the streets and a small one to hit up some of the bumpier roads and smaller roads in the town. Uh, another town that we're working with is in desperate need of um, a, a dump truck. And, you know, we purchased them a dump truck. Another town that we're working with is surrounded currently on three sides by Russian by the Russian army. It's almost completely evacuated. They're they're actively discouraging anyone from coming back. And and they are in need of a simple van to make runs back and forth uh, from some of the nearby cities. Um, I hope you'll forgive me. I'm not trying not to use any names for security reasons, but. We, I mean, we do talk about some of the cities that we work with. Uh, it's not necessarily classified, but, uh, but you know, we want to make sure that we're not giving away too much information. Totally understandable. So uh, this town, for example, um, you know, got their van this morning. We we dropped it off. We delivered it um, uh, to the mayor of that town and the people that he's working with. This is a town inside the uh, Bakhmut Rayon, the section that's still occupied, uh, sorry, still held um, by the Ukrainians. Um, and, uh, but we weren't able to actually physically go to the town because nobody goes to the town. <laughs> and we, uh, so we dropped this off. It's a refrigerated van. It allows them to get aid back and forth, anything that they need. Um, they can supply the town themselves. So every town is different. Everyone's needs are different. Uh, another town we work with, Kramatorsk, which I'm happy to mention, it's a larger city. It's, um, you know, they were never occupied, uh, but they do sit close to the front lines. They are not in need of these sorts of you know, things. They still have all their machinery, or at least most of it. So it's a mixed bag. And we try to take, uh, you know, we try to take an approach that's a person-to-person -person approach, uh, where we we start at the top, we start working with the local mayors and their deputies, um, but we don't stop there because we're all human. And when you ask somebody what they need, they tell you what they need personally, right? Even if they have their people in mind, they're trying to do something good, et cetera, they're saying, I need a trash truck right now. In this case, it was desperately needed for everybody and it's helped the entire town have these trash trucks. But to say, I need a trash truck, um, that's what an administrator who's running a town needs, right? But if you go to the actual people on the street, what do you need? That answer can change, right? I need seeds. I need uh, clean water. Um, I, I need, you know, internet so I can call my grandkids who, have, you know, are somewhere else. And and those sorts of, of conversations we try to have too, and we try to balance the two. So we speak both to, um, you know, usually it's a it's an older woman that lives on the street, um, the 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 grandmother to everybody on the street, uh, who often already has their own list <laughs> of what people need in town because they're just trying to be helpful. And when you roll in, they're like, oh, I already got it right here. 
And so we try to balance those two things. Uh, but working directly with the municipality heads um, really helps because we have the ability to, uh, you know, to remove red tape as needed. Uh, we have the ability to, um, you know, get information, sort of a high level statistical information. Uh, for example, how many kids are in town, what their age is, and how can we help them individually? Uh, do kids need Chromebooks or do they need, um, you know, toys, <laughs> right? <laughs> Something to keep them busy. So that's uh, that's part of the balance too. And it's it's a difficult balance. It's a logistical challenge. And, and how can people who are watching and listening, how can they help? Well, I would encourage anybody listening to visit us at ukraineaidinternational.org um, to see what we're up to. Uh, if you're so inclined, uh, please feel free to donate. It's tax, tax deductible within the U.S., but of course we can take donations from anywhere. Uh, again, that's ukraineaidinternational.org slash donate if you want to uh, go straight to the donation page. Um, in terms of helping out beyond that, we have a contact page. People can reach out and try to or learn a little bit more what we're doing. If you happen to have um, access to uh, the leadership in a town or a city uh, where you live, we would love to talk to that leadership about setting up a sister city program. This is, we've set up um, now, uh, we've paired 10 cities, nine in the US, one in France, with eight towns, in, uh, towns and cities um, in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, these programs have been incredible, not just for the actual aid that we can provide, but also, as you touched on earlier, the morale, right? Knowing that you have a friend across an ocean you've never met and still cares enough about you to try to help is, is everything when you spend half your days in a bunker underground. So setting those up would be great if anybody is, is listening to this and, and thinks they can help set that up. We're looking for towns that are socially active and want to get involved. And uh, and uh, although we never ask for taxpayer money, to be clear, it's all privately funded, but it helps to work with the town leadership um, to understand who to who to help us run that local organization, um, organizational funding. And uh, and then volunteers. I'll be honest, we don't take a lot of volunteers um, for operational security purposes, but also you know, for logistical purposes, it's not, you know, this is not a summer camp, you know, it's, it's not. So, uh, you know, but we are open, we are open to volunteers. Uh, what we usually tell people is if you're able to find your way to Kharkiv on your own, then we can talk because that filters out most people. Yeah. <laughs> we need, we need volunteers who are self-starters who are able to do stuff on their own where you can give them a mission and say, this is what you're doing. And they go, okay, I'll figure it out. Um, because we can't hold hands out here. We don't have, uh, you know, we don't have the ability to do that. And we don't have the ability to, um, to, to spend that time to do that. Yeah. And I, I imagine there was one of the things I was going to ask you is there must come a certain anxiety with being in a place like that, because it is, it is a war zone. It is dangerous, you know, in the end. And, and, you know, you've, you've had, you have a lot of travel experience. You've been to a lot of different types of places, which maybe is some preparation for that, but I don't, I'm not sure anything can prepare you for where you are now, you know, what you're doing now. It, are you, how do you manage that, that sort of, I guess, anxiety that might be, you know, associated with being in a, in a war zone? 
mean, some things you just get used to. Um, I'm sorry to say. I, you know, we were staying in Kramatorsk uh, the last few nights as sort of a launching off point to some of the towns we're working with. And uh, I think it was our second night. It was a very quiet, actually, the week. Um, we didn't really hear any booms. There was some artillery in the background, usually Ukrainian, because uh, if you hear Russian artillery, then you're really close. <laughs> um, but uh, but there was one explosion uh, near us in Kramatorsk uh, a couple nights ago. And uh, one of my colleagues who I was with uh, woke up and heard it, Ukrainian guy. Uh, I slept right through it. It, 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 it literally at a certain point, it it just becomes background noise. And it's it's sad to say, because that should not be something anybody should ever get used to. But, uh, and as far as I know, actually, there were no casualties from that particular strike. So, you know, in that sense, that was great too. But, but you know, even on the quiet nights and quiet days, if I pull up my phone right now, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven or eight air alerts that came out today. Um, depending on where you are in the city, it's louder or quieter, but most of the time you can hear the dull roar of a of an air raid siren, you know, blasting in the background and people go about their daily lives because you can't stop every single time when it's every single day, eight, nine, 10 times a day, sometimes for 30, 40, 50 minutes at a time. Um, some of these frontline communities, they're so close to the front lines that by the time the air raid siren goes off, if there was a missile headed your way, it's already landed. Um, that you just you just have to to leave it up to chance to an extent um, if that's the place that you're going to be, and uh, and we've heard every reason under the sun for why people don't leave this area. I know that this is a question I get a lot. Why don't they just leave? Why don't they just leave? Uh, why don't Floridians leave when a hurricane's coming through? You know why don't I? Uh, you know, why didn't, you know, why don't New Yorkers leave when Hurricane Sandy came in? You know, why, why is a war any different? They're both destructive things that are coming through and it might affect you in a really horrible way. But for some people, this is their home and they're not leaving, period. For some people, it's, it's an idea that I am the last line of defense if I have to be. That if I'm going down, I'm taking the enemy with me. Uh, frankly, for a very small percentage of people, they're hoping the Russians come through and they're waiting. Um, it's hard to know exactly how many, but it's not a lot, but they do exist. And, and for some people, it's because they're elderly, they have no family, they don't know where else they would go or they don't have the money to go and, and they just can't or they won't. So there, there's a million different reasons why people don't go, but um, but yeah, there's there's this. Uh, I was joking yesterday that I feel like I've got tinnitus because of the air raid sirens. It's just that constant dull in the background, and uh, but you start to you start to get used to it. You start to turn off the notifications. You start to live your life. Um, I, I always say that it's like playing the lottery every day, except in this lottery you don't want to lose or you don't want to win. Sorry. Um, if you win the lottery, you're done. But 99.99% of the time, you're probably fine. So it's scary. You watch the skies. But uh, but if it's your time, it's your time. And fingers crossed, it never is. So.
And, and and what are some of the next steps, next plans uh, for the organization? Do you do you have any uh, upcoming sort of a, a timetable? For us, it's uh, the name of the game right now is winterizing. Uh, winter's coming uh, quickly. Uh, days today was uh, was a little bit warm because the sun was out, but at night it gets down to freezing already. Um, and we're only in October. By January, the temperatures will drop 10, 20, 30 degrees below freezing at night. Um, it might dip down to minus 40. And um, and at that point, you can ask me whether it's Celsius or Fahrenheit I'm speaking, but at minus 40, they're exactly the same thing. So uh, it, it can get really, really cold. Uh, we got lucky last year. Uh, the winter was more mild. Uh, it, it's not common for that to happen two years in a row. We're hoping for it. We're hoping it's more mild, but we can't expect that. So for us, it's about heating. It's about uh, uh, you know people staying warm. And uh, you know, to that end, we're we're looking actually now to produce a machine, the only one of its kind in Donetsk Oblast that we know of, uh, which will be producing uh, pellets, wood pellets for burning. And we're sourcing these. Uh, the wood actually is being uh, donated to us from the municipalities themselves, uh, with the expectation, of course, that where we're building it, we're going to be supplying the town, and and of course, that's that's the main reason we're there. But they're supplying it themselves with trees that were downed by the invasion forces and from the liberation. Uh, trees that were damaged by artillery, trees that were you know rolled over by tanks. Uh, they're just pulling those aside, chopping them up, and getting them ready already um, for this machine that we're installing. And uh, with this one machine, we expect to be able to keep warm about 10 or 15,000 people. Uh, it sounds like a lot. But Ukraine is a country of 44 million. And in the East, most people have left, the majority have left, but the ones that have stayed still number in the millions. So there's a lot more work to be done. Of course, like I said, everyone's needs are different and every town is different. So some towns have full central heating <laughs> and, it's, and, uh, and it just hasn't been destroyed, uh, which is a great thing and we hope it never does. Um, but other towns, other towns don't have that luxury. So for us, it's about winterization right now. And uh, when we come the spring, we'll be looking at planting. Uh, throughout the whole thing, we're looking at fresh, uh, fresh uh, filtered water and, um, and widely impactful machinery, vehicles, uh, backhoes, you know, anything that will help the towns that are doing the work uh, rebuild uh, uh, water mains, uh, you know, get heating pipes back up and running and other things. Well, you're, you're doing a lot of uh, good work. I'm sure it is appreciated. Um, and I don't, I don't think you should discount the, the thousands and thousands of people that, that you're helping at, at personal risk to yourself. Um, I really appreciate you calling in. Uh, I know it, it's probably not easy to carve out some time and uh, internet might not be the easiest thing to come by. And uh, so I really, really appreciate it. I, I will leave a link in the show notes where everybody can find you. And and I encourage everybody to donate um, to help and uh, uh, best best of luck with the, with the future plans. Uh, stay safe and um, thanks for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And it's a, always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I hope we're going to cross paths again soon and we can meet up in person. But uh, you know, this is a, 
it's a big project. There's a lot to do and there's a lot more to do, but the best way to, to help is to donate and to donate to organizations. I mean, I'm going to plug myself because this is what it is, but to organizations like ours um, that are doing work that's focused on person to person rather than, uh, you know, sending money to buy something to put in a warehouse that will sit there for three years. Um, you know, we get everything out and try to keep a warehouse empty. So, you know, really, really appreciate everyone's support. If you're able to give, thank you. Uh, if you're able to give on behalf of people who cannot give, thank you even more. So um, appreciate it. And thank you, um, Anil, and it's always a pleasure to speak. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons down below if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening, make sure that you give this podcast five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks, Marshall, for being a guest on the episode. Like I said, all the links to where you can find out how to help are in the show notes, whether you're watching on YouTube, down in the description box, or if you're listening on your podcast app, whatever podcast app that is, it's down there in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for watching. And I'll talk to you in the next episode. Oh,